So church, today's reading comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 15. It's page number 966 on the Pew Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses from 11 through the 15th. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, we thank you for making your presence among us and being with us as we, the beloved community, seek your face. We thank you for being a God who is rich in mercy, who is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and that that mercy is available to us for the asking at all times plead for you now to pour out your great mercy in Pakistan, in Puerto Rico, also in the Ukraine, here, God, in Chicagoland, among us, in the city, in Oak Park, in all of the suburbs. Pour out your kindness in a way that many hearts will turn toward you, that people will fall in repentance, that the gospel will go out with power that millions here in our area would hear of Christ, and that billions around the world would know your name for the first time. We thank you, Father, for our shepherd. We ask that you would bless him. Thank you for the trip that Pastor Gerald, our elder, our staff member, are on together. Bring them back with greater zeal for you. Bring them back safely to us. Thank you for giving your shepherd-like care through him. And now God bless us to have power to hear your word and your spirit speak and to preach would you do a work in us today so that the name of Christ may go to places where Christ's name is not yet known through us, through our partners at Calvary Memorial. Bless us and give us your grace and we give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. Generally speaking, no one likes to have their motives questioned. No one wants you being suspicious about the why for decisions they are making about the way they live their lives, how they raise their children, determine when to move on to the next job, decide to date or stop dating someone you and others think is great for them, or spend their leisurely time or their free income. Yet... We often judge the motives of others even though we prefer not to have our own motives questioned. For example, we ask, what makes President Vladimir Putin continue his aggression against the Ukrainian people? And then we pose our own answers. He is sociopathic. His pride won't let him stop. He wants to conquer Eastern Europe and reestablish the Iron Curtain. He is the Antichrist. Now, in the case of the Russian aggressor, it is true that something evil is driving that engine. But my point is that we are questioning motives. Or again, we look at an aging single friend who says he or she hopes to be married and say, he or she must not really want to be married, for he or she could have married so-and-so single Christian person at the church by now. His or her standards are just too high. But maybe this person has right standards or has fears of being hurt again, or has witnessed years of his or her parents' awful marriage, or is wrestling with a calling to a profession that might require singleness a little longer in order to optimize schooling and the time sacrifices needed to be successful in this occupation. Saying he or she must not really want to be married, is speculation. Besides, I mean, really, if you weren't married or aren't married, would you marry the persons you are proposing your friend to marry? Right. So stop questioning your friend's motives. The questioning of motives is important however, for our service to people as believers. It is important that we have the right motivations to serve others or to serve at all. In an era when cynicism and skepticism about the church, its leaders, and its ethical practices abound, more now than ever, we need to have the one motivation that matters, that mattered to the Apostle Paul and that he hoped mattered to the church at Corinth. We must be motivated alone by the greatness of Christ for us. In these five verses before us, Paul will speak of the greatness of Christ by referring to Christ's judgment of us. 
Christ's sanctification of us and Christ's love for us. And Paul will start the first of his three ideas with this in verse 11. Number one, the greatness of Christ in judgment should motivate us toward the approval of both God and the people we serve. The greatness of Christ in judgment should motivate us toward the approval of both God and the people we serve. Paul's fearful persuasion of others looks for approval of his motives by both God and the Corinthians. When he writes, knowing the fear of the Lord, it would be right for us to ask, why does Paul speak of fear when we are saved from the wrath of God? The therefore at the beginning of the clause points back to standing before the judgment seat of Christ in the previous verse. We will stand before Christ in judgment. Therefore, we are afraid. And that moves us to persuade others. It would be incorrect here to minimize Paul's concept to an idea of reverence and awe that does not involve terror. As Linda Belleville writes, when we are faced with the divine, fright and awe more often than not coalesce. What she's saying is you can't separate terror out from awe when speaking of how we fear the Lord. Paul knows that we will stand in judgment more exposed than we are in our birthday suits. The mortician and the medical examiner will not know us in death as well as God will know us in judgment. We will be fully exposed with nowhere to hide, no excuses to offer, no fig leaves to grab, and no other persons to whom we can appeal or to whom we can shift blame. With my best and holy imagination, I think we should be expecting Jesus to say and do something like this. Now you, Let's start with the first day you believed on me and examine everything you have said and done. Every intention, thought, word, deed, and goal. We will be held accountable for our activities here for the sake of the reward of the Father and not for loss of salvation. That picture of judgment, which is not nearly as fearful as the actual experience will be, that picture of judgment is what motivated Paul to serve and should motivate us. It should motivate us to persuade people with the truth of Christ and his coming judgment. It should motivate us to persuade people about their sinfulness and hopelessness and to offer God's mercy and forgiveness. The super apostles at Corinth, who we have learned are not actually super from Pastor Gerald, but are charlatans taking advantage of the Corinthians, 
they still could attack Paul's motives. But for Paul, his real motives were already revealed to God. The implication of Paul saying this is that his motives are true and will stand the test of judgment when he appears before Christ. Yet, even that is not enough for Paul. It is not enough for him to have his motives approved by God. Paul also hopes the Corinthians will reflect upon how he and his colleagues have carried themselves. He is hopeful that the Corinthians' consciences will convict them about Paul and his colleagues being people of integrity rather than people looking for the praise of the Corinthians like the super apostles were doing. Gary Miller of Queensland Theological College writes on this verse, quote, being enslaved by the opinions of other people brings great pain to us. Nothing will crush us more effectively than the criticism of other people if we haven't embraced this truth. Nothing will puff us up more quickly or with more toxicity than the praise of other people if that's what we're living for. This will devastate your heart, compromise your decision-making, and ultimately undermine your whole service to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the problem with it is that for almost all of us, it comes to us naturally, unquote. In contrast to the super apostles, Paul is motivated by the thought of Christ examining his whole life. In this way, Paul has an audience of one. He only seeks the approval of one person. He cannot be turned from the task of proclaiming the gospel because of threats, ridicule, lack of conversions, slowness of numerical growth at Corinth, or the hope to be received with acclamation of the super apostles, Paul is motivated by the greatness of Christ in judgment. Unlike Paul, I spent much of my life as a people pleaser, especially in my earliest ministry. See, I'd always grown up as one timid, smaller of stature than my peers, always hoping not to make waves and to stay liked by everyone. You can see now I'm a little vertically challenged here, and you know, if you soak me in water, I'm still not that heavy there. I don't have those nice big football shoulders and neck, you know, that really challenges uh, uh, people there. It's just, you know, I'm just me here, so. <laughs> so I know firsthand that it can be a struggle to be motivated to please God when you think you are in the weaker position in a power dynamic among people you will see daily. Eventually, however, I came to the place in which not making hard decisions for fear of hurting people came to hurt me and rightly backfired on me. That hurtful backfiring experience forced me to examine my motives and to change my prayer life. 
I had to start asking the Lord daily to give me courage, both moral courage and practical courage, because I didn't want to get to glory, stand before Christ, and have him ask me, why were you more afraid of those people than of me? Or why did you want their praises more than my approval? The greatness of Christ in judgment is what should motivate us toward the approval of both God and the limited approval of the people that we will serve. Second, the greatness of Christ in sanctification motivates us to see those we serve boast of matters of the heart. The greatness of Christ in sanctification motivates us to see those we serve boast of matters of the heart. I'm down in verse 12. Those trying to drag the Corinthians away from Christ to follow them had questioned Paul's motives based on outward appearances. Paul's opponents valued polished rhetoric, letters of recommendation, and large payments for ministry. But Paul valued suffering for Christ and preaching the gospel for free. The first century prosperity preachers seem to have claimed that Paul was trying to commend himself to the Corinthians by his actions. While they themselves were holding up letters of recommendation for the church to read, they accused Paul of commending himself without letters by offering weakness of speech and a broken physical appearance. In short, they were saying that Paul was trying to win the sympathy of the Corinthians. Therefore, Paul needed to clarify here that in speaking of being motivated by the fear of Christ's judgment, he was not trying to commend himself for the church's approval. Instead, by presenting suffering and dependency on Christ as his credentials, the Corinthians could only speak about Paul in relationship to living like Christ and for Christ. When the super apostles came to attack Paul as one trying to lead the Corinthians astray, the Corinthians would be able to speak in turn that Paul feared judgment and that he never expressed a concern about being paid or being followed. All Paul cared about was the working of Christ in the heart, otherwise known as sanctification. There are many motivations behind why we work or worked in our occupations. We can be motivated by the need for approval of parents and family or for outdoing our peers. We can be motivated by not wanting to be a failure in the eyes of people who always thought that we would be successful. Or we can be motivated by not wanting to be a failure in the eyes of people who always thought that we would fail. We can be motivated by financial success, fame, acclamation, or not being a nobody, whatever that is. 
We can be motivated by the hope of saving the world or at least some aspect of it, whether your thing is saving forests in the Amazon or the endangered animal of your choice, refugees or migrants, whatever. Or we might be motivated to prove to a previous employer we don't need them or to stay out of trouble or to get revenge or just to make it to a great retirement. A physician, financial representative, middle school teacher, engineer, or graphic designer could be motivated by any of these, but being motivated by having people put their focus on the inward transformation of Christ and what he has done in the hearts of his own is something that should not be limited to preachers. Yes, we who are in ministry more than any others must be motivated by the hope that those who follow us can say that by following us, they are seeing the working of Christ in a heart before their very eyes. Those training for ministry cannot be motivated by the hope of landing on the staff at a large church, making a platform for ourselves, being seen in the media, or the pressure to make the family proud by following the work of older siblings or other family members. All those things will cause us to manipulate people to gain our success. They will make us convince ourselves we are called to serve only in places with the appearance of human success. And these things will send us into depression if we do not achieve the American dream through ministry. We will overlook needy and weak persons, for they will not be able to give us anything in return. We will only seek to serve those who have power and influence so that they can put in good words for our advancement. But Paul's example looks to produce in people gentleness, meekness, truthfulness, mercy, patience, contentment, endurance, greater faith, and the like. These are the things that make for the reproduction of Christ-likeness in others, that make for the transformation of the rebellious, the repentance of the wayward, and the uplifting of the hopeless and the healing of victims. Paul is concerned that the desire for praise of appearances of success should not replace the working of Christ in the heart. Paul doesn't want us to please people and to fear their faces. Paul wants the greatness of Christ in sanctification, the greatness of Christ in changing hearts so others will see Christ working in us. Paul wants that to motivate us to see those we serve be able to boast of Christ affecting matters of the heart. Three, the greatness of Christ in his love for us motivates us to live for others rather than for ourselves. In his love for us. Apparently, to the super apostles, 
Paul's continuance in ministry in the face of suffering, physical weakness, and little money meant that he was crazy. The ASV uses the words beside ourselves. Some translations actually have that Paul is mad or that he is a madman. Now, it does take a little bit of insanity to do ministry sometimes. It really does. It really it does. But, but that's beyond my point here. Uh, yet the Corinthians seemingly knew of a time they had experienced also a very methodical and detailed teacher in the Apostle Paul, what Paul says in his right mind. So Paul explains both types of actions in light of the greatness of Christ. Let me explain. First, there were times when Paul appeared to be out of his mind. Who would want to keep traveling, suffering, and have few converts to show for it. Maybe Paul should stop and take a break from ministry. Or he could back off, pleading with people to believe on the Son of God. Paul says, no, I am only like a madman for the sake of Christ because I want to see many saved by him. In the same way, there were times when Paul appeared to be much calmer, sober in speech, free from accusation of false motives. For those times, Paul needed to explain that he was not being muzzled by God, but he had the hope for change in the lives of the Corinthians. He wanted to speak and act in such a way that maddening would not get in the way of them receiving what he was trying to say. How could Paul be a madman for Jesus and a sober man for the Corinthians at the same time? He has only one motivation. The greatness of Christ now seen in Christ's love for him. Paul understands that we cannot be motivated by judgment only or we could become harsh legalists only looking to meet standards and be found guiltless. Then we become those who make the bar high, much too high for everyone else. If being legal and facing judgment is the only concern, you try to reach that bar. We must be motivated by God's love for us also, being driven by calling, mercy, grace, and thankfulness. We cannot be like the parent who says, you don't have to love me, just respect me. That breeds resentful, unloved children who primarily care about results and rewards, not about feelings and transformation of character. Our motivation must be found in what Paul says in verse 14, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. The phrase, he died for all, verse 15 also, is the common apostolic faith of the church, says Thistleton in his commentary. It is our confession. It is not a statement of universalism that Christ died for every person on the planet throughout history in the same way. 
he died for all is clarified by the following reason clauses and words like all have died and those who might live. It is all effectively and not universally or all would have salvation. It is this message that constrains Paul or controls Paul in the ESV and must constrain us in all that we do. It must place limits and guide us. Jesus has demonstrated eternal love for us in his dying. Jesus has done this so that like him, we give our lives away to serve others because we are serving Jesus rather than seeking to gain for ourselves in our service. Think of the security that we have in knowing that Christ loves us. We are not earning the love of God or his pleasure by what we do. We are not making God happy or even happier. Earning pleasure is what we do for coaches and employers, parents, music instructors, and mentors. Instead, imagine having the parent or spouse that no matter what you do, you cannot make that person change his or her love for you. Yesterday morning, while Pam and I were watching cartoons together, Pam made a joke about something I do resembling something one of the cartoon characters had done. But I didn't see the resemblance. <laughs> and I told Pam I didn't see what she saw. <laughs> she was having a great laugh, but I wasn't. <laughs> I was actually being kind of sour about what she was enjoying very much. Soon, though, I realized that I should have just laughed with the joke, and I told Pam so and that I was sorry, but we still had that awkward, uncomfortable air about us. You know what I'm talking about, that air of somebody in here said something he should not have said. As many of you also know, Pam and I have a few dogs in our possession, just a few. <laughs> After the cartoon series went into a commercial, I got up to take the dogs out of our room and outside for a few minutes. And as I got up and did so, in response, Pam said, I love you so much. I really wasn't expecting that, especially not with that awkward air going on. So I asked, you're not, you're not upset with me? To which she replied, no. I thought maybe you were upset with me about the joke. It was then that the significance of her saying she loved me sank in. From that point on, my day was made. You have no idea how my day was made at, at that point. 
If Pam had said to me next, say, I've been thinking about visiting my mom. I know you have to preach in the morning, but do you mind if we just hop in the car and drive four hours and visit her for a half a day and then turn around and drive four hours back? Would that be okay? I would have said, grab the dogs, let's go. Because you love me and you told me in spite of me not being the kind, gentle, and selfless husband, I should have been in the moment of your joke. And you saying you love me is not just for that moment, but it is for every moment, whether I am getting the husband actions right or not. I'm free to mess up, to make a mistake, to totally fail, and I will never lose her love. I can grow and thrive without fear of losing her love when I hit a bump in the road. And this is what it is like for me to be loved by someone who is equally bankrupt before God as I am. Just imagine how much more, how powerfully we can serve others when we are motivated by the greater everlasting love of God in Jesus for all of us. Christ died so that all for whom he died in his death would substitute in the, he would substitute for us in the judgment we will face at his own judgment seat. That same death for his own works to transform us so that we who are motivated in all of life to look out for number one, First and only, we now live to serve others for whom Christ died and rose again. In order for some of us to leave here with the greatness of Christ as our only motivation, we are going to need some internal changes. Some of us will need to reset our love gauges. See, even with Pastor Gerald speaking of the love of God for us almost weekly in his sermons, you, some of you, just can't believe it's true. It's just too incredible. You just aren't that lovable in your own mind. If that is you, please ask yourself, where did the thought that I am not lovable originate? I suspect it probably originated in the words of someone unloving towards you and not from someone constantly building you up with words about what a joy and blessing you are. You should see from Scripture that Christ, unlike that person or those people who said those things to you, he says all the time, you are such a joy to me. Now, go out there and serve the people for whom I died. Others of us might be asking, how do we learn to fear God more? Might I suggest to you a good exercise to do for the next week or two or longer if need be, a formative habit that many in here already do. Each morning, first upon awakening, after saying, thank you, Jesus, for letting me see another day, say to yourself, I will stand before Christ for what I do today. I will stand before Christ for what I do today. Then, at the end of your day, which for some might be early in the morning, 
say, am I prepared to stand before Christ for all I said and did today? Now that question is tricky because we could deceive ourselves, especially as it concerns our motives and our intentions. So we have to add some prayer and ask the Holy Spirit to show us our true motivations, our true intentions, and our hopes and our goals. Somehow, we all need to think of Christ as greater than the faces that we fear or of those who are, whose approval we are seeking. Maybe we need to read things in the news that show forth the greatness of our God. Many of us saw this week the images of Neptune sent back by the James Webb Space Telescope. Seeing those images were a moment of worship to our God. He created that great planet its rings, its orbit, and billions of galaxies that all of us have yet to see. And he has been enjoying them for however old the universe is and doing so without the use of a telescope or any help from any of us. That God sent his son to die for us because we have been disobedient to a God with that kind of power. He sent his son so that we could have power to please God, to join him in his decree to rescue people from his wrath and to his joy forever and so that we could be faithful and obedient to him. No other face we see can do this for us. Christ is greater than all the people we seek to please. Who is on your list of people who need to be persuaded about Christ? As we are praying for them daily, we should ask the Lord to give us favor in their sight the next time we are with them. And we should simply say to them again, please consider Jesus. He loves us. And then leave the results up to the Lord. We should not fear rejection and let the fear of rejection motivate us. Also, if you are listening to me, this message as an unbeliever, I am trying to persuade you to trust Christ, and I am doing so without false motives. And the people who invited you or have been talking to you about Christ, whether they are members of Calvary or live here in the state or live somewhere in another country, they have been doing it without false motives, period. Where you go to church after that is a separate matter. So even that discussion so that even that discussion does not make you suspect motives, I need to say, we don't want your membership here at Calvary so we can take your money or control your mind. So don't even think about coming to Calvary if that is your concern. Instead, we want you to find a church you like that preaches that Jesus is the only way to salvation. But that's second. Today, we simply want you to yield to Christ who died on your behalf and rose again to offer you life so you can have the same life and joy that we have. 
the opening lyrics of Jireh, the song Jireh by Elevation Worship and Maverick City Music seem to be so appropriate here. Here are the opening words of that song. I'll never be more loved than I am right now. I wasn't holding you up, so there's nothing I can do to let you down. It doesn't take a trophy to make you proud. I'll never be more loved than I am right now. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Didn't serve your children perfectly. You're still loved fully. A little rough with words towards your parents or spouse. Love from God is still at 100%. Try to be faithful with an example of Christ in the workplace, but slipped up under some unfair treatment. God's love for you did not go up or down. Just can't get it in gear to serve at the moment because life is too overwhelming for you right now. Jesus still loves you and has called you to salvation from all eternity. Jesus still loved you enough to go to Calvary's cross for you. Jesus loves you enough to transform you into his image. He loves you sufficiently so that salvation for us remains secure. And he loves you and I with full approval that we are his child, even as he will hold us accountable for the things that we do. We must have one motivation. In all that we do, we must have the one motivation that matters, the one motivation Paul could offer to the Corinthians in the face of super apostles trying to get the approval of people. We must be motivated alone by the greatness of Jesus, our God and Savior. The greatness of Jesus in judging us. The greatness of Jesus in sanctifying us. And the greatness of Jesus in loving us for all eternity. This greatness of Christ must, must compel us to persuade others to believe on Jesus. Without question, there is no other motivation but the greatness of Christ that will do for us. Let's pray. Father, may you kindly give us hearts that are motivated by a view of eternity with Jesus, of meeting our loving and kind judge who will call into account our lives, of knowing in this present world one who is making us holy and changing hearts so that people see him in us, and of one who from all eternity past to all eternity future will love us with an everlasting love, and it will never change. Make us to be motivated knowing that we cannot fail because Christ has died for us. Now God bless your people with grace. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.